Joining me now uh, is one of the most talented political figures I have ever met. Uh, I now understand why he was attacked by a weaponized judiciary system in an extraordinarily political prosecution because Rod Blagojevich, the 40th governor of Illinois, would have been president otherwise. He did serve as governor of Illinois from 2003 to 2009. He was in the U.S. House of Representatives as a congressman from 1997 to 2003. Uh, he is, uh, I must note, uh, a convicted felon like myself, but hey, this is the Roger Stone Show. If you're indicted, you're invited. Specifically, he was convicted of public corruption for allegedly selling the U.S. Senate seat that was being vacated by Barack Obama, uh, which he, as the governor of Illinois, had the authority to appoint someone to. Uh, he served eight years uh, after a very controversial conviction, uh, only to ultimately have his sentence commuted, com commuted by President Donald Trump in 2020. When Rod Blagojevich and I uh, were at Mar-a-Lago for dinner one night, seated at the same table, uh, the president was, as he often does, spinning the tunes from his laptop in the dining room, acting like a DJ. He sent somebody over to our table to ask us what we wanted to hear, and it was Rod Blagojevich who recommended Jailhouse Rock. Rod Blagojevich, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Uh, thanks for having me, Roger. Let me uh, quote somebody that we both admire historically, someone you knew, and that's President Nixon. I am not a crook. I didn't break a law, cross a line, or take a penny. It was a political hit that they did to me. A corrupt, weaponized prosecutors were able successfully to do at the AAA level to a Democrat governor. What they're now doing to President Trump, a Republican president, leading candidate for president at the major league level. And our country is in trouble, Roger. I suspect we'll probably talk about that. I believe this is the greatest constitutional crisis uh, we face in America since the Civil War. And uh, the stakes are high, and I think anybody and everybody who loves our country, cherishes freedom, believes in the right of the people to self-government, whether you're a Republican or, like me, a Democrat, Trumpocrat like me, whatever your political persuasion, we should all be against this because what's at stake is those things and the rule of law. But thanks for having me, Roger. You're... Uh, you're quite an interesting figure, and it's been a real pleasure to get to know you since I've come home from prison. Well, uh, Rod, I have studied uh, your case very extensively. It appears to me that your real transgression is refusing an order by uh, President-elect, or maybe he was president by then, Barack Obama, to appoint Valerie Jarrett to uh, the vacated U.S. Senate seat. But as I understand it, your conviction centered around a phone conversation in which the, the uh, prosecutors alleged that you were trying to sell the seat, but they would never play that recording in a courtroom to let a jury or the American people hear what you actually said. Well, there's so many parallels to what they did to me and what they're doing and trying to do to President Trump. And one of them is... Um, covering up evidence and that's exculpatory that shows innocence, covering up evidence that shows the full story of things, putting gag orders on you, which is what some 
the special counsel Jack Smith is talking about doing to President Trump. In other words, undermining free speech, thwarting, uh, shutting down uh, free speech. But no, the whole thing began. My troubles began right after uh, Barack Obama was elected president. It was election night in Chicago. Political figures and high officials, and I was one, the governor of Illinois at the time, first governor, incidentally. Roger, don't throw me off your show, but the first one to endorse Obama for president. And I was approached backstage that night. It was historic. First, you know, black president elected in our history at Grand Park in Chicago. Maybe uh, 500,000 people were there. Maybe not quite that. Sometimes they inflate the numbers, but it was magical. And I was approached by a labor boss who worked with both Obama and me politically over the years. And he said that, quote, unquote, Brock called me last night. Let me to come and talk to you. He's interested in you appointing Valerie Jarrett to the Senate. What is it that you want? Can I call you tomorrow and set up an appointment? I said, of course, see me. And so I, the conversations began the next morning with my top staff. I told them, you know, that Obama had sent this guy and that we should think about what we might be able to get. Now, these are political things, not criminal things, horse trading. And that's what they criminalized in my case. And then after I was in prison for nearly five years, the appellate court eventually got to uh, actually issue its opinion, and they reversed that case. The centerpiece of their case was a lie from the very beginning. But Winston Churchill said a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. And, you know, and that prosecutor arrested me at 6 o'clock in the morning, a sitting governor with SWAT teams around my house. It was, frankly, you should have, you know, who'd have thought, Roger, years later they do the same thing to you. Uh, he, at the time when he had me in custody, announced to the world that that's what I was trying to do. He's just a big liar and a corrupt guy, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. I went through that ordeal. I would never give in, and I still won't, And because it's much larger than just me being a governor or even President Trump being a president. It truly is about our Constitution, the rule of law, and um, free elections. Here's uh, what you said on Twitter just the other day. Consider the endless persecution Trump has to face very hard. I ask, why would he put himself through that when he could just enjoy life and the things his great success has brought him? There's only one reason. It must be because he truly loves his country and he believes he can fix it and make it great. Uh, now, you're a Democrat. You remain a Democrat. I'm a Republican, but we seem to agree on this particular point. Yeah, you know, You've been through it, Roger. I went through it. I spent eight years in prison because I wouldn't give in. And because uh, you know what they're doing is so wrong and so corrupt, you can't possibly give in. And in the case of President Trump, I mean, here's a guy who's lived, you know, in so many ways, a perfect life in the sense that he had all the success financially that he'd won, international, uh, celebrity, all those things that go along with the glitz and glamour that Donald Trump used to enjoy before he got into politics, the TV show Celebrity Apprentice, which I was on, which he correctly fired me on. By the way, he's the only president in American history, Roger, Donald Trump is, to have fired and freed the same guy. Even Abraham Lincoln didn't do that. But I asked myself, why would he put himself through that? You know, his whole life, 76, 77 years, he never was charged with a single crime, like you and like me, right? Now suddenly he becomes the president of the United States, and now suddenly he's facing as a former president three different criminal charges and likely going to get a fourth shortly all by democrats so obviously political but why would he have put himself through that 
and his family, when he could enjoy the life that he knew and that life that is so wonderful and not have to be threatened with the possibility of facing prison time, it can only mean that he loves America so much, and he, it can only mean that he sees just how terribly wrong all of this is. And uh, it can only mean that he feels like if he's successful this time around, and I believe he will be, notwithstanding what they're doing to him, that he's going to get in there and he's going to clean things up, shake things up. I think he learned a lot after the first term. I think he learned uh, something about government and politics that he didn't really, really understand as a businessman, and that is that so many of these partisan politicians in both parties – but I'll speak of my own party, the Democrats, Pelosi and others, Schumer, they had no interest in working with him to get anything done for the people. And I think he made a mistake thinking that they would make deals, political deals, and that the you could advance the common good and the general welfare by doing that, by working, you know, practically and, uh, you know, give and take in the process, which is how democracy, democracy is supposed to work. But instead, he walked into a system and a way of doing business now where, you know, the Democrat leaders in Washington – we're determined to do nothing but try to stop him from doing anything and destroy him along the way. They've taken politics to a whole new ugly level. And I do believe President Trump is enduring and suffering and persevering through all of this because he truly loves America and is determined to try to change it, fix it, and eventually make it great again. And uh, I, I marvel at his strength, Roger, because I know how hard this is when you go through something like that. It's amazing and it's inspiring. And he's a strong man. He's a strong leader. And that's what our country needs now. Uh, it really is quite uh, extraordinary. Not only did I travel with him a couple of days a few weeks ago, we went to Iowa uh, and uh, Las Vegas and then California and then back to uh, New Jersey. But I actually uh, spoke to him this morning. Uh, the man's strength really amazes me. I mean, uh, look, I worked for Richard Nixon. Uh, I worked for Senator Bob Dole. Very, very tough guys. Bob Dole was a true World War II hero. He was uh, hit by a shell uh, in Italy. He was told that he would never walk again. He was told that he would never have the use of his hands or his arms again. Uh, he was told that he would be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, that he would never be able to feed himself, never be able to button his own show, see, his shirt, dress himself. He basically fought back from the brink of that handicap uh, through relentless exercise and therapy. Uh, he had a withered arm, which he uh, concealed in a very successful political career by always having a pen uh, or a rolled piece of paper uh, in his right hand. He is, was truly one of the greatest men of the 20th century, uh, uh, but it was in an age of, of politics where there was a greater, I don't know, congeniality. Republicans and Democrats worked together to to get things done. Uh, I saw Robert Kennedy talking about this the other day in an extraordinary interview where he said that his uncle Ted Kennedy got more legislation passed uh, on a bipartisan basis than any U.S. senator in the history of the country. Uh, and that his Uncle Ted would often bring Republican senators home to the family Kennedy family compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts for the weekends. Bobby Kennedy said that when he was very young, Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah, a rock-ribbed conservative, came to spend the weekend uh, with Ted Kennedy. Uh, and that uh, 
that he thought Orrin Hatch was Darth Vader at that point. He was a he was a radical environmentalist at the time, uh, but that his uncle Ted understood that civility, congeniality, mutual respect, uh, honest, open debate could actually get things done for the people. That is the politics that I remember. Uh, you served in the House. What was it like when you were a congressman? Well, I was there uh, from 1997 until um, January of 2003 when I was then sworn in as governor of Illinois. So there's six years, three terms. And uh, when I first got there, Newt Gingrich was a Republican Speaker of the House. And then after him, Hastert, it was the years of uh, Bill Clinton had been impeached for the Monica Lewinsky stuff. And it was probably really, it was so much more collegial back then than it is now, certainly. People weren't out to, you know, put the other side into jail or prison. Yeah, sure, the other side was trying to beat you in elections. The Democrats were trying to win the majority over the Republicans and vice versa. There was a lot of gridlock and politically motivated. And that was a little bit frustrating for me because I go to these Democrat caucuses and you never hear, you know, Democratic congressmen or women in the morning. We have these meetings at 930. Talk about, hey, how can we work with the Republicans to get something done? It was always, how do we stop them from doing stuff? And that was frustrating. And so it was among the reasons why I decided to run for governor, because you can actually try to do stuff because you're the executive. But as frustrating as some of that was, and I think the seeds were planted where, you know, the politics of personal destruction, and this was directed at Clinton. And I understand a lot of people don't like Clinton and all that. And what he did with Monica Lewinsky was totally awful and rotten, but not impeachable. And uh, I think that set the stage for the development of this new kind of politics that's gotten worse. I think it even started back in, during the Watergate, Sands with Nixon. And, you know, the one side does it, then the other side gets power and they do it, and then it grows. And uh, now we got what we have, which I believe is, as, as I said before, we're at a point in our history, it's a central time of our history, a defining moment, really, on uh, whether or not this is the politics we're going to continue with, which is third world, Russian, Soviet-style type politics, or whether we're going to have the people have more of a voice. But to your point about whether or not, when I was in Congress, it was a lot more bipartisan, I would say, not so much bipartisan, but there were moments when the shouting would stop. There were moments when the hyper-partisanship would be put on the back burner, and you can actually make deals and get things done. And Clinton, in spite of his foibles, was able to put aside those personal attacks that went his way to find common ground even with Gingrich and with the Republican leaders. And the Republican leaders were willing to find common ground with him to move certain things forward. And in spite of the difficulties they had back then, you'll remember, Roger, the economy was flourishing. Things were pretty good in America. And uh, in, Democrats necessarily didn't hit Republicans and vice versa. So very different. Yet I, I, I look back on it now and I can see how the seeds of, were planted back then and how they've, those very seeds now are blooming, unfortunately, in what's being done to Trump. And I say this about Trump real quick, Roger, and you know the business a lot better than I do. He's an outsider who's truly keeping his promises to the people. This is why they want to destroy him. And when I say they, I don't mean just the Democrats. I mean those corporate country club, Liz Cheney. Mitt Romney, the Bush family-type Republicans who join the Democrats in Washington, and yet they fight 
against each other over certain things, but they stay within the margins. When you got a true outsider like Trump, who's actually trying to keep his promises to the people who elected him, and then he actually tries to do it, that's where they feel threatened because they're all lunching up on that system over there. I call it the political industrial complex. Lobbyists and staffers, presidents come and go, members of Congress come and go, or they stay there and become lobbyists. And these people are getting rich, the George Conways of the world, if you know who I'm talking about. And Trump is a threat to that. And he truly meant what he said, and he was keeping his promises. And this is why they've come at him so hard, and this is why they're so determined from keeping him from winning. And they know that if he wins now, after everything they've done, there's going to be a tremendous amount of change in Washington, and hopefully starting with the Department of Justice, because that is this new political force now that was never envisioned or contemplated by our founding fathers. So um, that's a long answer. I'm sorry for these long answers, Roger, but um, times are very different now than they were when I was in Congress. And the stakes are high, and I would encourage all of your listeners to vote for President Trump. Uh, if you are tuning in, folks, this is The Roger Stone Show. I'm on here with former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. So, Rod, let me ask you a difficult question. How were you treated when you were in the big house? I mean, uh, I, I, we had former Congressman Chris Collins on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Collins uh, served in hard time uh, in an upstate New York prison. Uh, he told me that he made lifelong friends there, that he helped counsel people on how they could start a business when they got out, how they could turn their lives around. He's still in touch with and I think has provided assistance to some of the men that he was incarcerated with. Uh, how were you treated uh, inside the joint? Yeah, well, you know, I did eight years, and I'm the only governor to have been put in the higher security prison for the first 32 months. I was in a prison that's actually like the prisons you see on television. Um, most governors, and in, in most of the time that I did in prison, was at what's called the prison camps, where it's still prison, but you're not behind bars, and, and there aren't fences. But for the first two and a half years, that's where I was, because if you're given more than a 10-year sentence, the law requires that you have to be put behind what the inmates call the razor wire. And that's where I was. And so there were, you know, gangbangers and, you know, uh, Crips and Bloods and Sureños and Norteños, Tejanos, uh, Aryan Nation gangs, uh, Pacific Islander gangs, Native American gangs. There were 950 guys there that were men there who committed murder, bank robbers, 2% white collar, a lot of sex offenders, and one governor. And that was me. Um, I have to say, Roger, I, I, I was treated very well by the my colleagues there in in the higher prison and the, then later on in camp. Now, you're there for a year. You're going to have conflict with some guys. You want the window open. He wants it closed, stuff like that. There are going to be some guys who just don't like you. But I got to say, by and large, uh, I was treated very well. And just like that congressman, yeah, I have friends to this day that I made there that I'm in touch with, some that I'm helping, just like the congressman did. You know, one thing I had going for me, which is the two things I had going for me when I walked into prison, was – they covered my entrance into prison, the media did live on television. Did these helicopters follow me from my house to the airport at O'Hare in Chicago? And then when I landed in Denver, because I, I was in prison in Colorado, uh, they were there waiting for me and they, they, they filmed me walking right in and the cameramen and followed me the whole way. It was like I was a mini O.J. Simpson in the white Bronco. That's how they treated me. And these guys are sitting in prison and they're watching all of this on TV live. And then moments later, I walk in. So I had a certain, you know, level of celebrity among inmates, which gives you a certain, you know, kind of something that makes them apt to 
be respectful. Cred. But the part, some big, cred. But the real street cred, Roger, comes when you walk in and they realize this guy got a 14-year prison sentence. He didn't tell on anybody. He's not a snitch. And in that prison world, when you're not a snitch, you know, that's a badge of honor. And so they really treated me with really high respect when I first got there. Most of them, not all of them, most of them. And, uh, and, and at that time, Roger, you know, my life, you know, I left my little girls back at home and my little Annie was eight years old. She would be 17 when I come home, my daughter and my wife, Patty. And, you know, when you go through something like that and you're, you know, you've been, you've been persecuted and framed by these lying, wicked people. You've got sadness and heartache and, longing for home as well as bitterness anger and disillusionment you're feeling all those things and you got a long journey ahead which i had which is 14 years to do you can't even see the light at the you know the flicker of a light at the end of the tunnel you have so long to go you got to be strong because you love your children you can't give in to these corrupt people so you got to endure and survive but at the same time i, I want to say a bad word but you're feeling like you know what terrible and the last thing that I feared and didn't at all was whether some inmate wanted to screw around with me. It didn't bother me the least bit. I feared nothing. I've been so, you know, beat up that if someone wanted to do something, it didn't, you know, it was God's will. But um, anyway, that's another long answer. But no, mostly pretty good. And I learned a lot in that system. And I learned a lot about how broken the criminal justice system is and how not only broken can't be trusted, how racist it is. But I've also, we've now seen how weaponized it's become. And a lot of these FBI agents, and I hope to still like to think most of them are good guys, and most of these U.S. attorneys are good people. I have to believe that still, I hope. But I think many of them have adopted, they've actually morphed into the very people they've been chasing. Notwithstanding, you know, my friendships with those colleagues I had in prison, most of those guys, almost all of those guys, were truly criminals. And they lived their lives outside of the law. And you can see how they live in prison. You can see how it's cops and robbers, basically. It's the good guy, the cops against them. And I think a lot of these prosecutors have picked up this, the ways of criminals and have now applied that with the power they have. And that's why this Jack Smith is such a blatant liar. And in an indictment against Trump, he omits purposely the very thing Trump said on January the 6th, which is, quote, unquote, peacefully and patriotically have your voices heard. Now, that's a fraud on the court. And yet these people get away with it. Yeah, it, it appears to me that it is uh, an egregious crime uh, to question the outcome, uh, the anomalies, the irregularities in a national election for which you should be incarcerated uh, if you're Donald Trump, but not if you are Kamala Harris uh, or Nancy Pelosi uh, or Congressman Jerry Nadler or, or Congressman Jamie Raskin or Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, or DNC Chairman and, for, and future Governor Terry McAuliffe, uh, or Adam Schiff. Uh, all of those people questioned the 2000 election, questioned the 2016 election. Uh, Stacey Abrams questioned the 2018 election outcome. None of these people were charged criminally. Uh, Donald Trump exercised his First Amendment rights to question the outcome of an election, uh, and for that, they want to incarcerate him. Is there any doubt in your mind that if Donald Trump were not running away with the field, 40, 35, 40 points ahead 
uh, for the Republican nomination. And despite this unprecedented mainstream media attack on him, uh, continues to lead Joe Biden uh, in the national trial heats, as in as well as uh, in every swing state that they would be bringing these prosecutions. In other words, he's charged with election interference, but is this not itself actually the real election interference? It's exactly what it is. It's an unprecedented way of interfering in the electoral process and trying to influence the outcome of the electoral process. And that's what's motivating these prosecutors. And I don't have direct evidence of, you know, contacts between the Democratic National Committee and Jack Smith or the, the uh, DA in New York, Bragg. Um, but I'd be shocked if there weren't. And whether they, they had their direct contacts or whether they're basically, you know, sending signals publicly through certain things that they're saying or doing, I have no doubt in my mind that what is being done with these criminal prosecutions is in harmony with the, the uh, political goals of the Democratic Party, my party which is uh, astounding to me that something like this could happen in, in the United States of America. I mean, this isn't Russia. This isn't a third world country. Or is it? And again, had I not gone through that hard experience and long, hard experience I went through, I might be skeptical about this. You know, one of the things I kick myself over, Roger, is when I had that power as governor, I feel like I was a great governor, did a lot of stuff for people and fought the system like Trump did. And my own party as well as the other party. But mostly my, the trouble I had was with my own party because my party had, at that time had controlled both legislative branches. But I was still able to push through stuff. But I look back on something I should have made a priority on, and that is to insist on the local school districts and pass maybe state legislation requiring that the curriculum in all the public schools throughout the state of Illinois is heavy on teaching civics and educating young people about how our government works, how our Constitution was formed, how it's supposed to operate. Because I think too, these Democrats are getting away with what they're doing. These prosecutors get away with what they're doing because not enough people fully understand that this is so blatantly in violation of the Constitution and the rule of law because at an early age, they just never really got schooled that way. So I'm kicking myself because I had that power. I should have done that. Um, but... No, if Trump wasn't ahead, they wouldn't be doing this. And that's the thing, which is amazing. So in other words, they're going to be driven by prosecuting someone for non-crimes based upon poll results. I mean, this is frightening for our, our democracy and for our country. And this is the seminal election that's going to decide whether we continue more down that road or whether we elect someone like President Trump to go out in there and reform the system and make it work the way it's supposed to work and the way it was designed to work. All right, I'm afraid we have to end it there. I want to thank Governor Rod Blagojevich, the 40th governor of the state of Illinois, for joining us today on The Roger Stone Show. Rod, God bless you and Godspeed. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best 
purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com. 